Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members and guests at IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. In this week's episode, we get to talk to Pinchas Shir, who is the Associate Professor of Ancient Cultures at Israel Bible Center. He teaches several popular courses, one of which is a series called The Stories of the Jewish Church. This is a study through Acts, and there is so much great content that the class is actually divided into parts. Part one was chapters one through five. Part two is chapters five through nine. And I am pleased to announce that the third part is now available. I will put a link down in the episode notes so that you can go and explore it. We get to have a short preview of the fun sort of details that are found in the class. However, before we get to the specific details of individual stories within chapters 10 through 15, let's just remember the larger context. Luke is understood to be the writer of the book of Acts, and this serves as a continuation or a second volume to the Gospel of Luke. So he carries really important themes from the Gospel into the book of Acts. Luke has a long travel scene in the Gospel of Jesus slowly making his way to Jerusalem for the final time. And then in the book of Acts, Luke has the story start in Jerusalem, and it slowly migrates out into the rest of the Roman Empire. When Pinchas and I started our conversation, I asked him to explain where Luke has already taken us in Acts before we get to chapter 10. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. Well, we're basically moving through like the 40s and further. So we, we get through first four chapters of Acts, and that's like about up to a year 35 CE roughly. So the apostles are still in Jerusalem. They're, they still haven't really moved out of that area. And then we get towards chapters like five through nine. And now we're really starting to get the good news message outside of the Jerusalem proper. And now it starts to spread to the countryside. It goes to Samaria. Eventually it goes to Cyprus and Antioch, which is what is in these chapters essentially uh, in Acts. And so that's around the year 40 or so. And so as we go into these chapters, you know, 10, 11, 12, and all the way through like 15, this is this is the 40s. And then, of course, the book of Acts uh, does end before the destruction of the temple. So we kind of get up to that level. And it actually covers a lot of material historically, but a lot of it is uh, all the in- inspirational stories, sort of say, of people traveling and how the good news really takes hold of different community and what how it transforms them. It just feels like this early Jewish church is going through crazy transformation in these chapters. And so we could even just start just with 
chapter 10. We have the introduction of this guy named Cornelius, and he's in a place like Caesarea. So how does this kind of put us on a different kind of track? It moves this sharing the gospel in a different way. Well, this is probably one of the biggest transformations, and that's really what this third part of uh, the stories of the Jewish church is all about. It's really about the entry of non-Jews onto the scene. And what people have to understand is they have to trace through uh, the pages of Acts of how uh, now the disciples are reacting to this. How are the Jewish followers of Christ reacting to non-Jews appearing to on the scene and and how are they treating them that's really really important you know particularly to me because i want people to see the sort of treatment that they would get hoping that you know this is the sort of treatment that others would get uh moving forward because in a sense that's uh that's the story of grace i mean how how entire people groups are now being transformed by this message it's really because of the pattern that the apostles has set so that's the big shift is Cornelius, non-Jews entering the scene. As you could see in, in chapter 10, they really don't know what to do with them. And this there's a lot of apprehension. There's a lot of, um, sort of say, this attitude. I don't know if I can work with this. Uh, there's a lot of hesitance that, that happens f- first, you know, in these chapters. And I think it's amazing that Luke actually shows that. He's being very honest in disclosing that, hey, everything was not so peachy. This Even, even apostles like Peter are really having a hard time uh, grappling with the idea of going to non-Jews. They don't really know what to expect. And, and something that a lot of people are not aware of is that, an average person today thinks, okay, you know, so somebody's non-Jewish, you know, and most non-Jews people know somebody that, you know, they're Christian or they have been Christianized. And we're not talking about uh, those kinds of Gentiles. We're talking about people who are into paganism. We're talking people who are into rituals that most people today would shudder at, essentially, but that was the daily life for them. There's no morality uh, uh, very much, sort of say, you do as you please, you do as you want. There's no exposure to Judeo-Christian ethics or commandments or anything like that. It's just people do as they wish. And 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 that's when, when, when the Apostle Peter would hear the word Gentile, that's what they would think about. They actually think about paganism. They, talk, they would think about all the debauchery that happens in the pagan cults and sacrificing to idols. And, you know, I, I want to tell people, like, visualize like some Viking from from back in the days, you know, drinking blood of their enemies from the skull or something like that. And that's what, they, in their mind, an image of a non-Jew or Gentile would come in. And so you shouldn't be surprised when you have this apprehension when, when God tells them, well, I need you to go and sort of say, speak to these Gentiles. I need you to go into their house. And, and they're saying, I don't know how comfortable I feel with that. Weren't we told earlier on not to really have anything right. to do with these people? right. So that one brings me to Peter's dream, which I'd love to talk about. But in the visual you just gave us for Gentiles, would Cornelius then, I mean, he's a centurion. So there's a lot of, you know, just that is he's kind of in charge of the occupying force. you know, And he's so the there's enemy. there's something there. But he's also a God fearer. Right. So is there a. Is, does that make him a softer entry into accepting Gentiles, or is it just as hard, even if he wasn't 
Like, is him being a God-fearer or him not being a God-fearer, do you think it even makes a difference to Peter? I think it makes a huge difference, first of all. Uh, and if you notice how in Acts, that really gets put forward on the very front part. You know, he gets the vision and from the angel, he sends the messengers. And what is the first word that the messengers that he sends say to Peter when he actually opens the door, you know, which says, well, there's this man in Caesarea and he's beloved by all the Jewish community and everyone respects him and he's a righteous and pious man, you know, like that's how they introduce him, you know, and this is our master. And he sent us with the message that he's supposed to come seek you out. So imagine this is how he's been introduced. Why is he introduced that way? Because it's absolutely necessary because Peter's not just going to go anywhere to anyone. Uh, but the fact that this Cornelius is a God-fearer, the fact that he has a really good standing in the community, uh, in his own town, uh, that speaks volumes. And so all of a sudden, yes, this person, this is the person that he can perhaps find something to, you know, in common and be a, in association with. And that's essentially why Peter acquiesces and goes, but the dream, the dream, the vision that he receives, that's, uh, that's a whole different dimension because you can imagine that having an introduction that's very positive uh, is one thing, but, you know, having God essentially come in a vision and telling you what to do, that kicks it up a notch. Right. So what do we do? I hear people going left, right, and center of this dream sequence. Um, it seems to be repeated three times, or at least God's instructions to Peter are repeated three times. There's clean and unclean animals that are all together. They come down on a sheet that has four corners. It looks like a ship that would be sailing in, but it's coming down from heaven. What on earth are we supposed to do with this? Well, I think, first of all, dreams are dreams. Visions of visions. People make way, way too much theology out of visionary experiences. The point of visionary experiences is something that the person who experienced that moment needs to walk away with. It's really for them. It's what's going on in, in their mind. It's what's going on in their heart. At that moment, the visions are, they're extremely individualized, essentially. And they're extremely sensitive to what's going on inside the person. You know, I don't think God shows people just anything. I think he speaks in the kind of language, visual language, symbolic language, it speaks right to us. And so I think the vision that Peter saw was very um, specific to him as a person, uh, very specific to his uh, inhibitions in this area, uh, also as a Jew. Uh, and so, and what he's being asked is to go, sort of say, cross-culturally now. Uh, that's what this vision really is about. Again, I say people make all kinds of theological uh, mileage out of this, but Peter himself actually interprets uh, the vision and later uh, other participants, sort of say, in the story also give an interpretation of the vision. And as complicated as people want to make it, um, it really is so simple. This is a vision for one purpose, is to help the audience, the readers, and Peter himself in a story to understand that God is allowing for Gentiles to come in into the sphere, and that some people, even if they're not Jews, even if they have no covenant, God has chosen them for himself, and he has sanctified them. So this is what this whole discussion of uh, language, what's clean and unclean is, if you remember the, really the gist of it is that animals are offered 
He rejects those animals and God tells them what? Do not reject what I've cleansed, basically. So to him, all the animals that he sees are unclean. And there's a lot of details in this vision. Some of the animals have to be clean and some of the animals have to be unclean. So presumably, Peter could probably choose the clean ones if he wants to. God tells them, slaughter and eat. Uh, and, and so he could probably pick out one or two that he likes from the vision. But of course, it's a vision. That's not, he's not even supposed to do that. He's just being presented something. And yes, he's being asked to respond. But curiously, uh, there's a selection there. So he could have said, okay, fine, I'll go for that one. Uh, no, he rejects all of them. And he says, no, I have not, I'm not going to touch this. I've never touched this before. I'm not going to start doing this. So obviously, this is something very personal going on uh, for him. And he's rejecting it, and he's rejecting it three times, and clearly the vision is from God. So imagine, uh, this is really serious to him. Um, and, and of course, it later he sits down and he ponders, what in the world did that all mean? And then the knock is on the door immediately. And just here, I am going to interrupt for a moment because we do go on to talk about the encounter at Cornelius's house. But then at the end of our official interview, Pinhas and I circled back to the vision. There is something about the vision that puzzles me. And Pinhas is the person I like to talk to about all things food related. In fact, we should probably do a few episodes on the podcast about food. Anyway, we were simply chatting when Pinhas brought up a theory he has about the vision. And I was so excited to include it in this episode. Um. Give you, I'll give you a snippet. Just, just this is this is the most this is the most radical thing, okay? That I'm actually going to push for, and I'm not. I don't think I'm the first one, but I'm but I'm going to highlight that a lot. Is that a lot of people think that the vision of um, of the animals coming down is about Jews and Gentiles being together? Well, I actually think about the Jews are not involved in the vision at all. I actually think the animals represents the different kinds of Gentiles, some clean. And some are unclean. And that's and what he tells them, it says, do not reject what God has cleansed. There are some animals in the sheet that are clean, that I have chosen unto myself. So a lot of people think that the clean and unclean animals, we, you know, because we, we think in, in binary categories, right? Clean, unclean, Jew, Gentile, right? Yes, no. That's how we think. So people think that the sheet represents that conflict. I actually think that Jews are not involved at all. He's being shown a picture of the nations of the world, and there are some within those nations that God has cleansed for himself. They're the chosen ones, and it's his job to go through and interact with them, essentially. So then, taking the Cornelius thing, the fact that the Holy Spirit is manifest to Cornelius would be a, and obviously this right here, one of the clean ones. Yeah, exactly. This is one of the clean ones. That's the whole idea. That's why he says, do not reject what I've cleansed. He tells him, oh, go, go for it. Do I've not never heard it. that. So it's a whole different angle. Because why? Because again, parochially and theologically, that passage is never being taught that Jews are not involved. Right? Yeah. No, it's and so I'm true. Saying, and I'm saying the only Jew involved really is Peter, and he's looking at the vision. Right. <laughs> and... And the and the animals are not a representations of Jews and Gentiles. They're representation. They're all Gentiles. All the animals. Oh my gosh, I love it. You can hear in my voice that that was information I had never heard of before, and I'm excited to kind of chew on that for just a bit. 
Are you with me in hearing those ideas for the first time, or was that something you thought about before? Well, let's keep pushing on into Acts 10 in the official part of the interview. We are following Peter after he has the vision, and he is heading up to Caesarea Maritime. The meaning does come to him a little bit later. Uh, probably He probably gets the, the true meaning of the vision when he finally gets to Caesarea. I, I think that's when, when he enters into that house of Cornelius, that's when he probably understands this is what the vision really was about. It's about this experience that I'm about to have right now. And I need to listen to what uh, God said and not reject his people as I would be prone to reject all the creatures in the, you know, in the vision. It is a remarkable scene to me because I see this moment of translation that has to happen. Peter has to figure out that, okay, so I'm going to speak to this God-fearer, this centurion, and what do I say is the good news? It's been a Jewish story all along. So why would it be relevant to this Roman centurion? And I think that conversation in that house is one of these moments I think is dynamic and fantastic. Yeah, I mean, this has never been done before, as you're right. This is um, this is something that is really hard for him because he doesn't really know, know how to approach uh, people like Cornelius. So what do you say? Now, him being a God-fearer, he has some background. He has some understanding. Uh, that means that he has been a part of a synagogue worship. He has been around the synagogue. So he would presumably understand some of the Torah. He would understand some of the requirements, some of the moral uh, aspects, and probably would have a concept, an idea of human sinfulness and things like that. So again, Peter has to make all of these assumptions. He doesn't really know Cornelius. Uh, he's just just being introduced to him. And he has to make assumption. Perhaps Peter had exposure to other God-fearers in the synagogue uh, where he was a part of. I'm sure this is not the first uh, that he has encountered somebody who is a non-Jew yet understands God of Israel and somewhat embraces whatever aspects of, of Judaism that they're willing to embrace. So he begins uh, with uh, simple facts. Okay, you know the story, you know what happened, you probably heard about this. Well, why would he say that? Well, because the whole entire area has heard about what happened in Jerusalem because uh, of the brutality and the claims that this person by the name of Jesus was making, healing people by the thousands. And so you don't, these things don't go unnoticed. Uh, so yes, synagogues were kind of buzzing with these things, and I'm sure when he was brutally executed in Jerusalem, right around Passover, people found out. I'm sure they found out. And, and now this message of his resurrection is starting to spread, so he may have not heard of that quite yet, but he probably did hear about the death part. And so this is kind of where he begins, uh, and he takes it from there. And then, of course, as he tells the story in the best way that he knows how, as he relates that information, something amazing happens, right? There's a manifestation of the Spirit. And, and that kind of interrupts the whole entire process. That Do you think it is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit on these Gentiles that is so shocking? Or is it the Holy Spirit was poured out on Gentiles and the Gentiles haven't even been baptized yet? 
you know, it's kind of, is the baptism tripping people up or is it purely the Holy Spirit just did for them what the Holy Spirit has only done for the Jewish people? Right. So I think the big shocker uh, for uh, Peter and his companions, you know, he's not alone there, by the way. He he comes with a whole entourage of people from, from Jaffa to Caesarea. Uh, there's a whole, there's several Jewish believers that come with him. They're all absolutely amazed that the Spirit is being poured out in Gentiles. Now, the gift of God's Spirit being poured out is something that many Jews have anticipated. And they look to the scriptures and they see these promises that God is going to do something amazing. And then what they've experienced in Jerusalem uh, in the earlier chapters is clearly something they understand as this is the uniqueness of the day that they're living in. This is the moment when God is all of a sudden starting to do this. Now, this may not have been possible or wasn't happening before, but now all of a sudden, with the coming of Jesus and his death, you know, and, and resurrection, now the Spirit comes upon people and these signs, these manifestations of Spirit all of a sudden becoming real. Now, they have probably gotten used to the idea that this can happen uh, because this is a part of the covenant. But what trips people up now is that non-Jews receive the benefits of the covenant which they never have entered. That is a tough one to understand theologically. How can you benefit from something, you know, from uh, have benefits of a relationship in which you, you have not entered? And that's where they really wondering. But what they don't doubt, they don't doubt the manifestation itself. They have absolutely no qualms about recognizing things for what they are. They say, this is God, this is God's spirit. And if this is what God decided to do, we're going to have to accept it and be wrong about it or be uh, surprised by it, be, uh, you sort of say, bewildered by what's happening. But we're just going to have to accept it as the fact that this is what God wanted to do, so he did it. Okay. Now we have to deal with it. Next week, we're going to start exploring what happens when the gospel message leaves the land of the Bible and starts migrating into the rest of the Roman Empire. All these fun conversations. This is why I like talking to people about the Bible. I am always learning new things. If you also love conversations like this, join us at IBC, where you will have access to many of the amazing courses that dig into details of culture and interpretation. You can even earn credit towards Israel Bible Center certificate program in Jewish context and culture. You will find links to a whole bunch of things down in the episode notes. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. 